Good morning. We're going to look in God's Word together. So if you do have a Bible, uh, please open up to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3. I'll read our text here in just a moment. Um, want to just uh, see if you have any guesses on uh, what is 1 and 17 16th inches by 2 and 5 8 inches and worth six million dollars any thoughts it's the most valuable baseball card in the world right it's a 1911 baseball card at the picture probably on the next slide it's called the honus wagner t206 it just sold again this past August for $6,606,000. Now, my guess is most people in the room think that's crazy. <laughs> uh, but it, I think it expresses a universal principle, and it's this. We always pay for what we prize. We always pay for what we prize, or we always invest in what we value. This is why some of you invest in season tickets to watch the Iowa Hawkeye football team. Uh, some, like car guys, will invest tens of thousands of dollars into their vehicles. The average engagement ring costs $5,500. The, now all the, some of the girls are like, wait a minute. <laughs> Universal principle. We always pay for what we price. We always invest in what we value. With that in mind, let me read to you today's scripture passage by the 5th century B.C. prophet Malachi to the people of Israel and now to us. Malachi 3 verse 6 says, I, the Lord, do not change, so you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a man rob God, yet you rob me? But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruit says the Lord Almighty, that all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Malachi was a 5th century B.C. prophet. And a lot of times when we hear the word prophet, we think of prophecy, thinking about the future. But almost all prophets in the Old Testament are giving more insights into their present than the future. Right? They're like radiologists. They're, they can look underneath the, the body to, to the deeper issues of the body. They're like 
uh, the car guy that doesn't care how nice your paint job is, they can open the hood and tell you if your car can really run. And so in Malachi chapter 3, we have this prophet exposing the Israelites for their own hearts, their own actions, and he gives them, uh, he's their prosecutor. And he prosecutes them and he says, you know what? You're cosmic embezzlers. You're robbing God. You're defrauding God. You're not giving God his due. And beneath it, he's saying, the reason you're not giving God his due is because you're, you're giving God what you think he's worth. You give little because you think little of God. And so I want to look at three reasons why they gave little. And lo and behold, uh, it's the same reason we give little. And then at the end, I'll, I'll give uh, the, the kind of four principles for what it means to be a New Testament Christian giving to God. So I'll give you on the front end the three reasons they gave little, or we give little. We give little to God because we forget his constancy. We give little because we forget his constancy. We'll see that in verses 6 and 7. In verses 8 and 9, we'll see that we give God little because we forget his ownership. And then the last set, we, we give God little because we forget his generosity. Verses 6 and 7 say, talk about we, the fact that we give little because we forget his constancy. So I want you to notice again here in verse 7 toward the end, you see that Malachi, speaking the words of God, is inviting the people of Israel, return to me. Turn back to me. Come, come back to me. And they're kind of like, well, how are we supposed to come back? And he says, Come back to me in giving. Give, give again. But the reason they're not giving, at least out of the shoot, is that they forgot his constancy. Uh, look, look at verse 6. Verse 6, this declaration from the Lord, he says, I don't change. I do not change. The, 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 the biblical doctrine for this is God's immutability. Right? He doesn't mutate. He doesn't change. He's, he's consistent. In the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 13, it talks about Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But if you look at the context here, the, that God doesn't change is and was Israel's only hope. That God doesn't change, Jake, Jacob, the people of Israel, they've not been destroyed. All right, so here's the contrast. Jacob... They have been unfaithful. They have been inconstant. They pledge this great faithfulness to God, and yet they bail out time and time again. But because of God's constancy, his immutability, they haven't been destroyed. He's constantly forgiven them. He's constantly poured out his mercy on them. He's constantly called back to them, come back. I love you. You know why God's constancy and God's immutability is so important? Because if God could change, he could only go downhill. <laughs> God is God. He's all wise. He's all good. He's all powerful. So any, any aspect of change would not be a win for us. But he stays the same, and he keeps forgiving, and he keeps calling people back to himself. In particular, think about Israel. Time and time again, God judges them, but then he forgives them. 
God breaks them down, but only to build them back up. He's cursed, he's blessed. He's hurt, he's healed. He's challenged, and he's comforted. God doesn't change. We change. And when we change, he comes in out of his character and his goodness to woo us back. For the New Testament Christian, we see God's constancy culminating in the arrival of Jesus Christ. First John says, we did not love God, but God loved us. And so he sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. God's constant, persevering love sends the Son. God saved us, it says in Titus, not because of our goodness, but because of his mercy. God remains constant to his people. It also, you know, God's constancy is, you know, this character that's true in, in, in eternity, but then it also intersects our lives, right? So I was thinking about where, where do I, where is one of the high points of God's constancy in my life? And I was thinking about the, the two, three weeks that my father was dying down at the University of Iowa Hospital. It happened to be the same time after I decided to resurface the floor and my back hurt like crazy. And by the way, when your back hurts like crazy, driving every day to Iowa and city and back and sitting in waiting rooms and watching your father die, it's not a fun experience. You know what I saw, though? I saw God's constancy, friends reaching out to me. I don't know how many women helped come fold laundry, in particular their pastor's underwear, but there was a lot of women from this church who were, who were the hands and feet of God's constancy. He held us. He's still holding us. He held us as we supported my mom to make some of the toughest decisions she's ever had to make in her life. God sustained my body amid the pain. In your own journey, where do you look back and say, I see God's constancy in my life, his consistency, even when I wavered? Has he held you through cancer? Has he wooed you back after you wandered away? Do you remember the time when he saved you and freed you from gift? Do you know of a time when he spared you from death? We give little because we forget God's constancy. But when we remember his constancy and his faithfulness to himself and his people, we're going to let go of what we think is much. <laughs> we're going to give to God who is much. But we give little because we forget God's constancy. The second reason we give little is because we forget God's ownership. We forget his ownership. In verse 8, it says, Will a man rob God, yet you rob me? And then they push back. Well, how have we robbed you? And then he says, In tithes and offerings. Um, so if you read through the Old Testament, you read aspects of the Old Covenant, you realize that God allows Israel to come into a geographic region known as Israel. and But God co communicates over and over again, this is my land of which now I'm going to apportion places for you to live. And I'm going to give you uh, beasts of burden in which you're going to raise. You're going to have fields. You're going to have crops. But God owned every square inch of Israel. And then, in response, the people would steward his land. If he's the owner, we're the stewards. 
he's king, we're slaves of the king. <laughs> God owned it. So much so that if land got sold and, re- and uh, new people took possession of the land, like every 50 years, there was supposed to be this big return of lands and provisions back to the original 12 tribes. Like, that's how much God owned it. Like, you would just borrow it for 50 years, and you might, your, your geographic space might end, but guess what? After 50 years, that guy who was down, who had made some bad choices, or his granddad who made some bad choices, we're going to reset this thing. Because he wanted all tribes and all people of Israel to succeed. God was the owner. Uh, And because God was the owner, those living in the land, they were basically functioning in something like an HOA. They were in a homeowners association and they had their dues to pay. Those dues are described in verse 8. He called them in tithes, notice the plural, and offerings. The reason why the word it's tithes is in the plural is they would give two annual tithes, so they would give a gift of 10% twice a year. And then in the third year, they would give an additional tithe, and that one went particularly to care for the poor and the vulnerable. And then it mentions, those are the tithes, set tithes, and then it says, and offerings. Then at a couple major festivals every year, the, the Jewish people, they would bring additional offerings of beasts and grain. And then there are other offerings that I would just give more to God because I want to praise him, a fellowship offering, or if I sinned against God and had guilt, I would give a guilt or sin offering. One scholar estimated that the average Israelite could be given as much as 40% if they were generous in their offerings, but the tithes alone would have averaged about 23 and a third percent every single year because this was that was part of being a part of the homeowners association. Welcome to Israel. Enjoy your stay. God owns everything. Well, how does that relate to the New Testament? Was it, if I'm a Christian now, do, am I obligated to give 40% to God, you know? Percentage to the church and the poor. Well, let's just cover a few things. First off, under the New Covenant, because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Christians are no longer obligated to those Old Testament tithes and offerings. Christ died for those two. He has fulfilled the great, he, he is the final offering for sin. He is complete. So we don't owe God any sort of set tithe or set offering. And yet we're still stewards and we're still owned. I appreciate a scholar by the name of Peter Adam. He summarizes well what we now owe Jesus Christ under the new covenant. Peter Adam writes, we owe him our trust our love, our service, our obedience, our worship, and our sacrifice, we owe him ourselves. And so in some ways, this is true. Jesus doesn't ask for 10%, he asks for 100%. The Apostle Paul explains this, uh, this idea that he owns every square inch of our bodies, every cent in our bank, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, 20 says this. Know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you receive from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Well, what price? Well, Jesus bought us with his blood. The apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. 
For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. This is the idea. God owns everything about us when he bought us by the blood of Jesus. I was asking some different people in this church this week kind of their own thoughts on giving, what motivates them to give, why they give, how they give. And I appreciate uh, just one illustration of giving given by one of the people who wrote in. When, when you were little, or maybe this works to some of your children right now, when, when Christmas comes along, sometimes dad will give you some money to buy mom's gift. Maybe, maybe, maybe dad does that at Mother's Day. Hey, kids, here's 20 bucks or here's five bucks. If you really like her, you know, 100 bucks. I give my kids each a dollar to the dollar store. I'm not sure what that says about me. Um, but but can, can you imagine if, if a dad gave $20 to say, hey, I want you to, to bless your mom? Like, whose money is it? Well, a kid can be like, well, it's mine now. I'm going to give a, I'm going to give $2 to mom. God owns everything. And when, when he gives us his things, he still owns everything. We're now just stewarding his things. And so it's not about a percentage. We'll come back to that later. It's about the recognition. He owns everything. Everything he puts in my hands is his. Every dollar I spend, every dollar I go in debt, every luxury I think is deserved, God owns everything. And so we'll give God little when we forget his ownership. But I think we'll give mightily when we recognize his ownership and we remember the kind of character of this owner. He is constant. And he bought us by his blood. A third reason, though, that we give little is this. We give little because we forget his generosity. We, forget, we give little because we forget his generosity. Look at verse 10. So in verse 10, there's this, this, this call to Old Testament Israel. Come on, bring your whole tithe into the storehouse. That there's food in my house. By the way, I appreciate it. I asked uh, some of these young, some people at our church about why they give. And one of the first lines when one was, because we don't want the Proctor kids to starve. <laughs> There's something to that in the, old, in, the, in the way of Old Testament giving. That the whole, so the, the Lord's house would be supplied, would be so that the priests and Levites had food to eat, so that they could dedicate themselves to the Lord's work. Going on, it says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And then he says, test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. See if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. Then it describes in agricultural terms, I'm going to prevent pests and I'm going to bring rich harvest. The the fruit is going to be nourishing. And then what happens is, As God pours his blessing on Israel, all of the nations around Israel go, what a blessed nation. And the word blessed says they know it didn't come out because Israel's that impressive. They were blessed because God poured down blessing. The reason we give those, we forget God's generosity. 
and you know, if you read through particularly, you know, the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, God describes in vivid detail to Israel under the old covenant that, hey, if you're faithful with your materials, give it your material possessions, you give them the Lord, you just watch God bless you with material blessings. Try me. See if you can outgive me, God says. See if you can outbless God. And God's like, you're gonna lose. God will show himself faithful. Now again, we're not under the old covenant, so I don't think we have the same sort of material blessings. And I would, God forbid, a preacher say to you, you know, if you give your whole salary today, when you go out, I'm pretty sure a winning lottery ticket's going to blow into your face. Right? Much of those physical promises and blessings that are all throughout the old covenant uh, are now the signs of greater and sweeter spiritual blessings that Christ has secured for His people on the cross. The greatest payday is not going to come in this life. It's already been secured for us on the cross, and we're going to see it in the next. Physical Israel is a shadow of the future of heaven and earth, right? The abundance of Israel, I believe, is a shadow of the advancement of the gospel that he wants to see in this day. We belittle the greatness of God in the gospel when we kind of expect material blessings from our giving rather than wanting and desiring the honor and expansion of God's name and glory to the ends of the earth. Is there anything greater than that? That being said, God is so generous that he still richly provides materially for his people. And more often than not, it's that last minute dollar. It's the surprising check. I mean, Paul talked about his own confidence in money in Philippians chapter 4, a familiar passage that has nothing to do about how well you'll do on the sports field. Uh, you'll get what I'm saying when I get to verse 13. Philippians 4.11 says, I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. So he's talking about, he was asking a church to give money to his ministry, but he says, by the way, I'm not saying this because I'm worried. I'm content. Verse 12, though, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. God's going to take care of your needs. He's really committed to that. Uh, one of the sisters who uh, talked a little bit about kind of why they give and what it's like to give wrote this. He said, they wrote, honestly, since tithing is the first item on the budget, there really isn't anything we are giving up in order to give to the church. And we are really blessed with such a huge network of people that many hand-me-downs and shared items, they just show up. We are really not in need compared to so many. And that's kind of what happens, that when you're giving, God shows up. He, he supplies at the, at the last minute. He always takes care of his people because he's generous. And so he is. Test me in this with your giving. Test me in your generosity. You will have more than you need. But God often doesn't 
give you more stuff to raise your standard of living. I believe God gives you more stuff to raise your standard of giving. Right? I think God loves seeing his generous children say, look, I'm going to give them a little more because I know they ain't going to hold on to it. Hey, I wanna, I'm going to give four principles on giving in a second, but I want to invite Amanda Rossman to come up. Amanda Rossman is going to share about a little bit about her journey of giving in her life. Where is Amanda? There she is. After she shares, I'll share a little more, but Amanda, thanks for being willing to share. No problem. Hello. I grew up in a family where regular giving was practiced as a normal part of everyday Christian life. The church I attended gave out little boxes of these giving envelopes each year with little ID numbers on them so that people could give. And then at the end of the year, the financial secretary could uh, give tax receipts to the correct people. When I was 16 and working my first job, I took one of these boxes home and used an envelope every other week to tithe for my paycheck. One of the pastor's kids, who happened to be a good friend of mine, told me I had no business having those envelopes because they were only for real givers. It made me feel really small that my tithe wasn't good enough, that I wasn't good enough to be a real contributor to the church. But I continued to give my $10 every other week anyway. And like the rebel that I am, I continued using my giving envelopes. Looking back at it now, it was a small sum, but like the widow's mites, it was a sacrifice for me, and I'm confident that it was pleasing to God. Maybe not my rebellious attitude, but the giving part. At the end of the year, when the statements came for filing taxes, an elderly gentleman in the church, who I knew only by sight, had written on my statement a simple note of encouragement and thanks for my faithful giving. It meant the world to me to know that he did not resent me for using the envelopes and that he saw my faithfulness. He didn't care about the size of the gift. He just wanted to encourage the heart behind it. As I've grown in maturity, I see now what he saw then, that it, giving isn't about the amount. It isn't about the need per se. It is about the effect it has on your soul and your relationship with God. I continued tithing throughout my teens and college years, and then the day came, my wedding day. Among the many wonderful changes, there were some not quite so wonderful changes, such as paying all of your own bills, all of them. Thankfully, both my husband, Matt, and I were on the same page as far as giving, and we continued to tithe after marriage as we had done before. But paying all of our own bills for the first time was definitely an eye-opener. You may be surprised to know that in my younger days, I had quite the penchant for makeup, expensive perfume, and fashionable clothing, and Matt enjoyed frequent meals out. But with bills to pay and a desire to give and save, we learned to prioritize those things above vanity and luxury. This isn't to say that buying any of these things is wrong. We just found that they got in the way of our other priorities. Even so, things didn't always go so smoothly. I remember one particular month, a couple of years into our marriage, it was one of those months where absolutely everything goes wrong. Both cars broke down, including the new to us car we had just bought. 
multiple big ticket household appliances broke. And I was nervous because despite having savings to cover some of those repairs, we just didn't have the ready cash for all of it. We were going to have to dip into our emergency fund, which I know is definitely a first world problem, but to the younger me, it was nerve wracking. The easy choice would have been to save the emergency fund and put off giving to the church or our missionaries that month. And it definitely occurred to me, but I knew that wouldn't be right. We gave in faith. And that car we had just bought, well, we had sold our previous car to a, to a teen at a good price. And then God prompted the hearts of the parents of that teen to send us a surprise check, which ended up being almost exactly the right amount of money to cover the amount we were short that month. Looking back on it now, it seems silly to be worried about having to take money out of our emergency fund. We were definitely even blessed to have an emergency fund. But God knew that my faith was small and that I needed to see his hand of provision. Seeing the Lord provide for us again and again over the years has both built my faith and made the sacrifice of giving faithfully a joy. I would be lying if I told you that I never thought about the things that we could have or the money that could be saved if we did not give faithfully. But those are fleeting worldly things, not the things of God. I will leave you with a passage that is both convicting and comforting to me. Matthew 6, 25 through 32. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your fa heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? You have little faith. So do not worry saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. He knows your needs. Thank you, Amanda. Let me close by just giving four principles on, on giving as a New Testament Christian. And uh, most of these come from 2 Corinthians verses, chapters 8 and 9, 1 Timothy 6. And uh, 1 Corinthians 16, take these, those big passages and pray about them, but here are some principles. Number one, our giving should be intentional and proportional. Our giving should be intentional and proportional. I get this from 1 Corinthians 16, 1, where the Apostle Paul instructs us now about the collection for the Lord's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. So this is the common New Testament teaching on the first day of every week, which was a Sunday. Each of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, the collections will have to be made. Um, by the way, our deacons are not planning to take collections this week. But the picture is intentional and proportional giving. Christians intentionally set aside money from each pay period, social security check, monthly earnings, stocks, to support the Lord's work. Uh, when I reached out to some Cornerstone people, I appreciated one sister wrote this. 
While we see that a tithe was not specifically prescribed in the New Testament, we seek to give at least what was prescribed in the Old Testament for the local body, and then prayerfully and joyfully give more where there is a need. We also want to remember the widows and the orphans and those imprisoned by budgeting and giving to ministries that are taking care of these groups of people in the global church. Our giving should be intentional, should be proportional. Number two, our, go- our giving should come willingly and at personal cost. Willingly and at personal cost. When the Apostle write, uh, Paul talks to the church in Corinth in chapter 8 of his second letter, he writes this. Uh, and now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given to the Macedonian churches. In the midst of very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Did you catch that? Out of poverty, they gave generously. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. A brother from Cornerstone wrote this about giving. Number one, somewhere I heard it said that giving financially is one of the main ways to make sure that greed does not get a hold on our hearts. And then two, a helpful guideline I've heard on how much to give is that we should be giving enough that it means giving something up. There should be things we would like to do or have that we must choose not to do or have in order to make giving a priority. And that person was a wise person because C.S. Lewis agrees. Great quote by C.S. Lewis is this. I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I am afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, and amusements, etc. is up to the standard common among those with the same income as ours, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditures excludes them. Third, our giving should lead to equity and joy. 2 Corinthians 8, 13, and 14 say this, Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that they in their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. So we give knowing that God doesn't increase Again, doesn't give us money to increase our standard of living, to increase our standard of giving. And one of the goals is we prioritize to give to people who have less so that we get closer. There's no magic sweet spot. There's no, like, communal giving so that we all get, you know, an even 50K. It's not that. But it's to make sure that we give up extravagance to make sure that others have their needs met. It works the same with our time, too. We should set aside time to serve others. What a gift to use our time to assist those with needs. Fourth principle. says our giving should be generous with an eye on heaven. 1 Timothy 6, 18-19, it says, Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. And it says, in this way, they will lay up, treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of life. They take hold of the life that is truly life. One of the reasons we should give is you're not going to find life in your stuff. You never will. 
the great life that is coming will be felt more by not holding on to the stuff here. Again, there's no set amount, but generous giving stewards the wealth given by our generous God. We give because of his constancy. We give because he owns everything. We give because he is generous. I just want to say one last word, and this is to those who are really opposed and cynical to any time a church talks about giving. And I would just invite you to focus your attention on Jesus. God asked Jesus to give everything, and he did. God called Jesus to give a willing sacrifice to lay down his life, and Jesus gave. And three days later, Jesus is raised again. God vindicates his son. And all of those sons and daughters who will give in such way, you too will be vindicated. You'll be taken care of along the way, but one day in heaven, in heaven all of it will be vindicated, paid back in spades, because that's our Father. Return to your first love. Return to God. I close with some wise words from my seminary professor, Craig Blomberg, because this gets to the heart of the, the danger of wealth. Return to your first love. Why, right? If wealth ever stands in the way of our wholehearted allegiance to Christ, then we must divest ourselves of it. We want wholehearted allegiance to Christ. And anything that would take that away, we got to get that away from us as fast as we can. Let me pray. Father, in your mercy, in your mercy, would you call us back again? In your mercy, let us see your constancy. In your mercy, let us see your ownership. In your mercy, let us see your generosity. In your mercy, let us see that the things of this world, the things of this world are just passing away. There's no permanence to them. There's no hope in them. There's no help in them. Our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. In Christ's name, amen.